Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good morning. This is Mitch Winnick, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, Kern County College of Law, and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I'm pleased to join you today on Wagner and Winnick on the Law. It's the holiday season, and Stephen and I are going to talk today about presidential pardons. And you might wonder, what the heck does presidential pardons have to do with the holiday season? But as you know, if you've followed the news this time of the year each year, one of the more kind of charming aspects of American kind of policy and politics is that the president of the United States pardons a turkey every Thanksgiving. And so since this is the Thanksgiving season, we we anticipate that the president's going to pardon a turkey this year as well. And so we thought we might go into the history a bit of pardoning turkeys. Uh, The history of turkeys of pardoning turkeys, not history of turkeys, <laughs> the history of turkeys, even like other things in American politics, evidently has a little bit of controversy. And I had to look up the history of it. And, and one of the things that Stephen and I talk about enjoying about doing this show is each time we pick a topic like this, we have to, to do some background research. And, and and so on this one, I had to start the research. And And let me give you a little reason as to why there's a a dispute. One historical story says that the pardoning of the Thanksgiving turkey goes back to Abraham Lincoln. So we're talking about 1863. And so President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 granted the first known clemency to a turkey. And it was actually recorded in the national news uh, so so that we started there fast forward to the era of uh, the 1913s and the thought was that perhaps one of the later presidents were the first to, to do it Warren Harding actually in the 1920s was provided a, a turkey from the American Legion and it was a big deal they put Hunting on the crate. They sent it from Mississippi to Washington. There was news of the whole travel. The first lady was there to, to grant it. And then there was this big event. A Girl Scout presented it to him, and the president granted the pardon. So so whether it was started with Calvin Coolidge or started with with Abraham Lincoln, the, the fact is that it's become a national a national thing to watch for Thanksgiving Day. So, so Stephen, you know, I know you're a prosecutor and you don't like to see the guilty go unpunished, but do you have a thought about the pardoning of the Thanksgiving turkey? <laughs> well, you know, Mitch, I just chimed in. Uh, I, I heard your intro, and first I just want to give you full credit for choosing our topic today. You're just just in case people think this is kind of lame. I don't know. I, that seemed like a backhand comment to me. <laughs> no, no, I just <laughs> no, no, I like it. I think it's great. So yeah, uh, the pardon power and uh, reprieves and commutations—that's the topic we've taken on before. I I think it is a fascinating topic. Uh, did you lead in? Because I actually missed the lead in. I had to jump in on the phone because I had a Skype connection issue, but. Uh, did you lead in with the pardoning of the turkey? I did. I was talking about it being a historical event that we think goes back to the 1860s with Abraham Lincoln, and that has become a regular event with current presidents of the pardoning. Uh, I have not yet talked about the, the, the origin of the president's 
pardoning power. I do know we'll get to the serious part of that, but but I just thought, you know, what are your general thoughts of should that turkey be left off, let off the hook? Oh gosh, you know, I I like it from a daughter may be listening. Let's keep in mind, your daughter may be listening. <laughs> yeah, I know, I understand. Yeah, I don't want to disturb or criticize that tradition at all. No, I I I think it's fine. I've actually I researched it. Uh, how far back does it go? Does it go back to Coolidge? No, I even mean, it that Coolidge has got a lot of press, but the the history on the White House webpage actually says they claim it goes back to Lincoln in 1863. Okay. So we're turning the clock back even further. I did, because when <laughs> I researched the issue, I actually saw the, fir- the first stories I saw were uh, of JFK, and then uh, I also saw President uh, Bush, the elder. Yes. So in recent eras, those are the two that are that are best best known because uh, Kennedy in 1963 said, you know, let's 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 keep the turkey going. Uh, Nixon actually started the process of sending the turkey, not just pardoning the turkey, but sent it to a children's farm. And then Rosalind Carter in 1978 did the same thing, sent it to a different mini zoo, a children's mini zoo. And then Ronald Reagan continued it on in 81. And as you said, in 1989 with George H.W. Bush said that the, the turkey was not going onto the White House dinner table. So, Okay, so, so I was about to ask, uh, what was the post-pardon part of the story? Like what happened to the turkey? That was spared. <laughs> so evidently, the the most common destination of the turkey were children's farms or petting zoos. So they don't just get turned loose to the wild. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I was that. Uh, uh, so I I do want to. I know. I tend to be a little too serious on these things. We are going to get back around to Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona as far as a presidential turkey. But, oh, wait, I'm sorry, a presidential pardon. <laughs> All right. So, But let's so talk about the origin. Go ahead. We're starting, starting with some levity. That's right. That's exactly All right. right. In honor uh, of Thanksgiving. In honor of the Thanksgiving and holiday season. So... You know, it's one of the interesting parts of the U.S. Constitution you know, because the most people probably don't realize that the right of a president to, to give pardons and clemency is built directly in the Constitution. And, and many of the things you and I talk about have constitutional basis. I mean, I guess one could argue that all laws do, but this one very specifically does comes out of uh, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution. That's right. Yes. And and what and it that's, says... That's... Go ahead, Mitch. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it, it says right there that the presidents are vested with the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. And not to get you know, right into the heart of, of the current discussion of pardons and clemency, that there has been, ero- there have been, just you know, erroneous claims that the a current president could pardon himself from any crimes and therefore have total right to do anything. And and that people who say that just haven't read the Constitution because, in the case of impeachment. A pres- that's the one thing that is specifically accepted out of the, of the Constitution from being able to do. That's right. So there's clear limitations on, on the impeachment pardon or the ability to thwart or stop the impeachment process. That's right. And, and so <clears throat> before we talk about specific ones, and I think it's kind of interesting, we, talk, we can talk historically this morning about some of the more notable pardons by presidents over the, over the years. Um, but there's also confusion about what, what does it exactly mean? What, what is the president allowed to do? And so to, to kind of answer that question, <clears throat> 
it's important for folks to know that you know, a president can issue a full pardon. They could, and in doing so, it reverses a criminal conviction as if it never happened. But it's important to know that it doesn't remove the record of the conviction. It, it reverses it, but it doesn't remove it. And that comes up other times in criminal prosecutions, doesn't it, Stephen, about expunging records? Right, that's right, yeah. So, for instance, in California, pursuant to our penal code, um, and it's 1203.4, and that would have been a motion to expunge, uh, there is a procedure by which uh, someone who has suffered a conviction, uh, a good example would be a felony conviction, they can move to have, first, they can move to have the felony conviction reduced to a misdemeanor after a certain amount of time, and then the misdemeanor could then be expunged. Uh, but as you indicated, uh, the question of whether it truly is removed from the record uh, is is actually, the answer to that is it is not. In other words, there's still access, for instance, if you applied for a job and there was a criminal history check run um, on an individual, it would still appear uh, as a conviction. Yeah, and we actually did a show about that oh, a couple years ago and talking about just what you you just outlined, which is that if, and there's some specific jobs in which that's gotten folks in trouble, uh, we see it in applying to sit for the California bar exam, for example, that there are times when someone, when they're reporting on their background check for their moral character review, they think, oh, I had a, a episode, something I was convicted of, convicted of, it was expunged, therefore they make no mention of it in their declaration that's done under oath, and it turns out that that alone can be a violation of the ethics rules of failure to disclose. Yeah, that's true, Mitch. And the other thing that you probably know is that on many official applications, the question is framed or cast in a way that invites the applicant to also answer a question regarding arrests or contacts with law enforcement. So that's the other way that uh, that, that information is often gleaned also. You know, and I've always had a bit of a problem with that one because someone could be arrested and that in and of itself, and you know, you've helped us understand that many times, merely being arrested is not an indication of guilt of anything. It requires you to be processed through the justice system to be convicted of a crime. And so it's always, I've always found it a little problematic that, that you have to put in a job application that you might have been arrested, even if you, you, well, you did nothing more than head down, check in at the police station when they said, oh, sorry, we've got the wrong person. You're free to go. Yeah, you know, Mitch, I'm in your camp on this one, actually, uh, because when you compare arrest to conviction, that's a dramatic difference. So we've had that discussion many times on our program before. The arrest of a person merely requires probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that the defendant or the suspect, I'm sorry, um, is associated or involved in the crime. It's quite a different standard when we're talking about uh, the quantum of proof to secure a conviction. So I think you make a good point in terms of the stigma associated with having to reveal an arrest uh, as, as compared to a conviction. Well, let's pick that back up after the break. Uh, we're going to take our first break here. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about pardons. Come back right after this break, and we'll continue this discussion. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College, 
College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, the Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Wagner, an attorney down in San Luis Obispo, California, also a former prosecutor, current prosecutor, and most importantly for our conversation today, a law professor who's got experience in evidence and criminal law. And that's particularly appropriate because today, if you've been listening to the first section, we're talking about pardons and presidential and government rights to expunge the record. And we're doing it in honor of the holiday season because many of us will see the president pardon, we think, pardon the Thanksgiving turkey, as presidents have done back to 1863. But just before the break, Stephen, we were talking about the issue of expunging records. And, and I'd like to go back to that for just a second, because that that is a, an important point that, you know, it's one thing most of us are not going to be subject to a presidential pardon, let's hope. Uh, but the issue of, of your permanent record related to a criminal activity uh, does come up in job applications, and particularly if it's a government or a federal job application, doesn't it? And, and you were just saying that, that the fact that you may have a conviction on your record, but it was subsequently modified, will not change whether or not that comes up in a criminal background check, Correct. Yeah, no, that is true, Mitch. And a couple of things I want to uh, add to that, and and it is that there is still an advantage to seek um, a motion to expunge pursuant to our our California Penal Code. So, in other words, if you have suffered a conviction, if you move for an expungement, which is a motion to the court that's served on the prosecution. And what typically happens procedurally uh, and mechanically is that once that motion is filed by the individual who suffered the conviction, the prosecuting agency would, of course, review it, have an opportunity to be heard on the issue, and 
much of that entails or involves the prosecuting agency looking into the background of that individual to ensure that that person has been uh, certainly crime-free and that there have been no um, additional charges or no pending matters. And that's primarily what the court is concerned with uh, when the court uh, presides over that motion. So typically those are granted if, in fact, the individual who suffered the conviction has performed successfully on probation. Uh, I had mentioned felonies first, Mitch, because it's it's a two-step process when there's a felony conviction, and, and that would be one would be a motion to reduce the felony to a misdemeanor, and that procedurally can be done, and that is usually followed by a motion to then expunge the misdemeanor. But your point about the indelibility of that is a really good point uh, because, as you mentioned, there still is an ability to access the records. And by that, I mean uh, an inquiring mind, let's say a would-be employer, could get access to the expungement record, which, of course, then means that there is something in the background. So, Stephen, the... It makes me think about it. I hadn't thought about this when we talked about it before. But so let's say someone is convicted of a felony. They are given, let's look at the more the, the more lenient side of it, I guess, whereas they're not actually given, they're not incarcerated. They spend no time or no additional time in jail or prison. But they are given, let's say, a two-year probated sentence. So if they have two years and what most people don't realize is the terms of probation will be very detailed. There'll be things that they either must do or must refrain from doing during the time of probation. Let's assume for a moment that they've successfully done all of that. Then let's fast forward another, what should we say, five years or 10 years. So they have now been an adult, gainfully employed, their life has changed. There's really nothing related to that prior episode that's happening. Can anybody at that point just go back to that court and ask to have that, either that felony knocked down to a misdemeanor or the, or the, the record expunged? Yeah, they can. Uh, the process by which that occurs is, again, a motion to the court. Um, and in California, that would be a motion to reduce as I referenced previously, and the the action always centers upon whether or not there was a successful completion of probation. So uh, although I don't want to offer guidance that is perceived as advice at all relative to employment law, Mitch, what I can say, and as I indicated previously, there is still an advantage to seeking those reductions because if you're standing in the shoes of the candidate, and let's and this usually does arise in the employment scenario, right, Mitch? Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, about. that that's how you set the table for the topic. I mean, if you're if you're an applicant and you know that the would be employer is going to have access to your background, and let's assume, Mitch, to ramp it up a bit, assume that it's a security sensitive position that you're looking for. Um, one that requires a very in-depth background, because that's another issue, too, Mitch. They don't always include, employers don't always include a very in-depth background. You know, they don't always um, contract out with an agency to find criminal histories. They don't always do that. But in certain job positions, they do. Um, there is still great value in seeking seeking that uh procedure, the, the motion to reduce felony to misdemeanor and then ultimately seeking an expungement. Uh, because yeah, I, I thinking, think that record would ultimately be seen. Right. I was thinking in terms, just as we were talking about, you know, let's say, you know, uh, not that this is in any way uh, to to explain away behavior, but, you know, we talk about youthful indiscretions. And so someone who was an adult, so let's, we're not talking about a, a juvenile, but someone who's adult, uh, running with the wrong crowd, has something that happens, they are convicted, it does go on their record, they successfully serve their probation. Now they're 
29, 39 years old, they have experience, and they have an opportunity to apply for, or they think they might want to pursue a career in a, a different area that might do a detailed background check, one of the, and particularly a criminal background check, it, I think what we're saying is that one should certainly consult an attorney and look into whether or not it is worth the effort or likely, given those circumstances, to file the motion you've discussed. And so, and so, yeah, criminal, I, and so they understand, Stephen, and they go back where? So let's say, uh, let's say it happens in Monterey County, but now you live up in Sacramento and have for 10 years. You file that motion back in Monterey County? Is that where you have to initiate the activity? Yeah, you would initiate it in the county uh, where the matter was adjudicated. So wherever the matter was tried or presented, yes. Okay. Well, I hadn't really thought about that, but it really yeah. makes a lot of sense that the law, the law anticipates that circumstances can change for people and that they should be entitled to at least apply to the court to have that record adjusted. So I like yeah. that. No, it's... It's interesting. I mean, I like the way you transition from the pardon issue. Uh, as you indicated, that's a, an Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 power, and I think you referenced that as far as the power source goes. There are some analogies to be made uh, in state laws, too. So, uh, you know, the other thing that, that is, is interesting is that if you look at pardons, uh, there's also commutations or so-called reprieves, and that's a, a reduction of a sentence uh, that's already imposed. So there's a couple of different different results that can occur. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and one of the things uh, you know I want to talk about. And let's let's do it in the third section. I, I want to talk about more current uses of the pardon because the presidential pardons have always been a lightning rod for political commentary because it's one of the absolute rights a president has. Frequently they happen in the waning hours of a, of a presidency where that's, it's one of the last things they do. It's not required to be, uh, but it frequently happens at the, as they're on their way out the door, they, they have a flurry of commutations. Uh, but the difference that you've just distinguished, Stephen, is important because in some cases, someone could still be incarcerated, right? And the president would have the option not just to pardon them, but to, to actually terminate the current sentence, commute it for time served. They could reduce the fine. They could eliminate a, a dollar fine that's been imposed or a dollar penalty. All of those things are allowed under the Constitution, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, uh, Mitch, the other thing that I'd share about that is because you've mentioned that these actions often happen at the end of the term, the president's term. You're absolutely right. And uh, I think it has a whiff or a flavor of a favor, if you will. <laughs> I think that's something that we've got to take, uh, take on, you know, directly, because the same thing happens, by the way, with appointments. Uh, they are often made at the tail end of the term. No, that's exactly right. And I would have to say most people would probably argue it's probably more than a whiff <laughs> of favoritism because there have been a number of, of presidential pardons that, uh, well, one might, probably the one that for people of a certain age would come right up was, you know, Bill Clinton pardoned his brother who was in prison under uh, for a federal cocaine possession? So I mean, uh -huh. that's that's about as I don't want to say self-serving, but directly serving the family of a president as probably any example in history, right? Yeah, that would call for upgrading my whiff reference. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's well beyond uh, a whiff. Yeah, thank you. You, you blew that one up. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's true. And then, of course, uh, President Trump uh, and Sheriff Arpaio. He did that one right out of the gate in the beginning of his term. Yeah, so that, that becomes a very interesting one to look at. Uh, two, two reasons. One, because it did happen at the beginning of his presidency, not at the end, which is, is common. 
but uh, but that was a matter that was still being litigated in the courts, and that made that one very interesting and different than others. He had been convicted under fe- in federal court for contempt of court. He was awaiting sentencing, and the sentencing had not even happened. So not only had there not been, a, been an appellate process, the the sentencing hadn't even happened when the president stepped in. So that yeah, makes that good point. Quite Good, good point, Mitch. And without tipping my hand as to you know the appropriateness really of any of the pardons, there is so much more intrigue associated with the pardon of Sheriff Joe Arpaio because of the the reasons you just mentioned that the wheels of justice were quite clearly still in motion in that case. I think we can take it on a little bit with more detail. I'm not looking at the clock, so I'm sorry if we're coming up on a break. But about 45 seconds. Oh, good. Okay. So, so uh, just to finish my thought, the, the timing issue, I think, is great. And I, I think it's, it's um, nice that you introduced that, because that makes, in my opinion, there to be more intrigue associated with that, and uh, more of a look into the motive behind, or the reasons behind the pardon, which I think, Mitch, we can probably both agree there will always be scrutiny placed on this power that really seems unbridled. That's exactly right. Well, it it does because from the definition in the Constitution and the use of it over all of these decades, it is unbridled. So let's let's pick up on that after this break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about presidential pardons and the, the adjustment of records, not just pardons, but expungements under the, that are allowed under the law. So after this quick break, we're going to continue that conversation. Don't go away. We'll be right back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. 
constitutioncenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to constitutioncenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, the President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Wagner, law professor and attorney and prosecutor. And we were talking today about a, a variety of things, but they center around the topic of, of pardons and the, particularly the presidential constitutional right to grant pardons uh, of anyone convicted of a crime, of a federal crime. And, you know, we actually hadn't talked about that, Stephen, that this, it's, it's important to point out that, that the presidential's limit is for a federal crime. The president cannot pardon you if you're found guilty under state law, but governors can, right? In many states, they have a similar pardon right for state law, whereas a state governor couldn't pardon you for a federal conviction. Yes, I agree. Great point. So same, those same, uh, those same um, powers or rights uh, of the leader, in fact, executive or commander-in-chief in the case of the pardon, the president, that is, uh, there's crossover to state leaders, and that would be the governor. That's right, for state crimes. And that would have to be a constitutional right or a statutory right granted in each individual state. The, the Constitution of the United States doesn't extend to give that type of a specific right to a state officer. So, so we're talking about these issues, the, the federal issues, they apply to all of us in, this, in the 50 states uh, and territories. But you'd have to check your own state law to see what was available there. Uh, Picking back up on on Sheriff Arpaio in Arizona, as as folks recall, what just a brief synopsis of that, because it raises some of the issues that you and I were talking about, this was a case where a local sheriff, so a sheriff generally having countywide jurisdiction of an area, so a sheriff under... Uh, operating under state law was undertaking what were alleged to be unauthorized illegal stops of individuals that he said had indications of suspicion of being illegal immigrants. So the, the allegation was that he was racial profiling and having his sheriffs, the sheriffs under his command, stop people who looked like they were illegal immigrants, and then detained them. A lawsuit was brought over 10 years ago, a reminder of how long it takes for some of these issues to get all the way through the courts. And the lawsuit alleged that it was violating the federal civil rights of these individuals. So it was brought in federal court, even though it was a state sheriff. And the federal district court judge after the trial, with testimony on both sides, came to the conclusion that from, a, from the federal judge's viewpoint that this was a violation of those individuals' federal civil rights and ordered the sheriff to stop doing this, and he refused. Therefore, the final lawsuit was a, a claim of him refusing to follow the orders, a contempt of court of the federal judge it was a misdemeanor, and that was what the guilty, the, guilty plea, the guilty finding was, a violation of a federal misdemeanor of contempt of court. And while he was awaiting sentencing, the president stepped in and pardoned him from that federal crime. So I just wanted to no, go through that a little bit because no, there was, was a good, good. state interplay there. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that recitation, Mitch. That was, that's right. So the... Criminal conviction suffered was a misdemeanor contempt violation, and that is, in essence, a violation of a court order, um, typically one that requires intentional violation and evidence to show that he was on notice of the order and he 
he intentionally violated it. And then you did set the nexus up, I think, properly because it was directly related to immigration, which then triggers the connection with federal laws. That's right. So that the time, it, what what made it interesting continues to make it interesting for those of us who study issues like this is that it's 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 unusual for a presidential pardon to come into play while a case was still underway. So as we pointed out, he'd been convicted of the misdemeanor. The judge had yet to sentence him to either the that could be up to six months in in jail or a fine. And, of course, there had been no opportunity for appeal or any of the rest of the, the judicial process. So it was even more controversial in this one case for a president to step in while the criminal justice system was still going through its steps. Yeah, and the other thing that makes it unique also, uh, Mitch, I think, is the fact that the underlying criminal conviction was a misdemeanor offense not a felony offense. So if you looked empirically at uh, pardons, uh, typically they are made uh, in connection with felony offenses, not misdemeanor offenses. That's right. So it's as much as, it's, you know, regardless of which side of the fence you fall on on this, uh, let it be clear that you may not like it, but there is no doubt that the president, under the Constitution, as you pointed out, Stephen, had the right to do this. It's just one of the the powers that come with the presidency. That's so let's true. talk about a let's just talk about a couple of others. We don't we only have a, a few more minutes here, but you know, there's some very famous and infamous uh, pardons that have happened over the years. Perhaps none bigger than when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon after the Watergate. Uh, so yeah, that, I think it'll be very difficult to top that one in in terms of newsworthiness, Mitch. <laughs> that's that's right. And so that was a case where he was pardoned for any crimes that he may have committed. So we didn't even have a conviction then, and yet the president, President Ford, was a was allowed under the same exact terms of the Constitution to step in and pardon the former president. An un, a full and unconditional pardon for any crimes he may have committed while in office. And what that did is it just stopped any pursuit of Nixon under any federal law related to a crime related to his presidency. So, And you know what I've forgotten, Mitch, about that is the timing of that pardon relative to uh, President Ford's uh, commencement in office. Well, it was almost instantaneous. I mean, he it did was it right. Wasn't it right? Yeah, it was in the very early stages, right? Uh, absolutely. And yeah. and in later years, Ford was asked about that because there's no doubt that you know, if we think Sheriff Arpaio's pardon raised some eyebrows, you can imagine. Uh, if someone wasn't of age and living through the Watergate era, you can imagine the profile of one president giving a pardon to his predecessor after the tumult of the Watergate era. So it was on the front page of every news. It was every, every it was virtually the only thing everyone was talking about at that moment. Um, but President Ford said he felt it was time for the country to move on, that there, regardless of one's belief of what Nixon did or didn't do legally or illegally during the Watergate era, he felt enough was enough. It was time for the country to move on, start the healing process, and that that was more important than pursuing and using the resources of the country and the emotion of the country to continue in the pursuit of of whether the question whether or not Nixon had done illegal things. Uh, and so there's some fun ones as well. I say fun ones, but some Mitch, interesting... Can I crash in just a sure. second? I got to say, I have to say that the uh, President Clinton pardon of his brother uh-huh. is, a pretty, is a pretty close second to the Ford pardon. I get that it's, it's dramatically different, but as far as the coziness factor goes... And and the alarming favor factor, you gotta you gotta join me in saying that one, that one has a little more than a whiff, doesn't it? You have no argument for me on that. 
I mean, I, that, that, <laughs> that kind of falls into the tawdry side of things. But, you know, they're, you know what, you, in the end of the day, it, that puts the point on it that the Constitution gives in some very narrow areas very powerful uh, rights to the president to enact uh, his office. Uh, so let's let's talk about it. So there's some that folks won't understand, but or may not remember. But uh, people may not remember that you know Peter Yarrow, who was the, the very famous uh, singer under the Peter Paul and Mary. He was the Peter of Peter Paul and Mary, and he was he was pardoned because he was convicted of. And this comes into a very pertinent discussion in today he was the the word was improper liberties with a 14 year old fan and so similar to the allegations going on with Roy Moore at the moment we happen to have in this case it was a 14 year old fan he was convicted Peter Yarrow spent three months in jail and Jimmy Carter granted him a pardon years later you know decades later from that from that conviction so it, it broad range of things we could go through. There's you know, obviously hundreds of them. Uh, Patty Hearst, some folks may remember, was was found guilty of bank robbery uh, after she had been uh, abducted. But then they felt that she stayed. She then turned into a militant. Was the allegation, and she actually spent two years in prison for conviction of bank robbery before Jimmy Carter. Can uh, pardon her as well. She so. did indeed. That one's rather close to home to me. One of my father's former law partners, who was a deputy U.S. attorney, uh, actually prosecuted that case. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, James uh, Browning. And uh, so let's just, I mean, just a couple minutes, really toss another one. Let's go back even further in history, because as you can tell, there's, there can be, as you pointed, some political. Uh, aspects of it. Brigham Young, who uh, fought against the United States forces when they tried to install non-Mormon officials in the state, he was convicted, and President James Buchanan then pardoned Brigham Young in his role of what was a kind of internecine state warfare between Brigham Young and federal forces back in that era. Uh, so, you know, most people wouldn't have thought of that. And then I'll just kind of toss out George Steinbrenner, for those who are big baseball fans. Uh, Steinbrenner was found, he actually pled guilty to making illegal campaign contributions. And he had a $15,000 fine. Major Baseball suspended him from his role. And Ronald Reagan pardoned Steinbrenner in his those one of those in the closing days of his second term, Steinbrenner was added into a presidential pardon as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one because it makes me think of the additional stigma associated with the the wrongdoing and convictions. The pardon does not erase residual stigma or stigmas that, for instance, might impact somebody in the private sector. So. That's that's exactly right. It wouldn't necessarily, like a presidential pardon wouldn't allow you to necessarily be reinstated as the owner, manager, professional ball player in, that, in the segment we talked about recently. So we've given kind of a broad potpourri of discussion, but, but I think it's, it's appropriate in this holiday season to have a legal discussion of forgiveness. Isn't that, wouldn't that be a fair way to talk about this, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think that's right. A little bit of official pro- forgiveness that starts right there in the Constitution that gives, under the President's order, a second chance, a clean slate, all of that, that that was recognized right there in the front of the Constitution. So, I guess we would say... Before, is, we, before sure? we sign off, I'm sorry to interrupt. Does all this mean I'm going to have to change the menu for Thanksgiving? <laughs> I, I'm not going to go there, Stephen, because I don't think I will. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, let's welcome. Let's at the beginning of this holiday season. Let's say happy holidays to everyone. We hope you have a happy and safe holidays. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. As always, you can hear an archive of today's show on VoiceAmerica.com Business Channel. As we remind you each week as we close the show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. <laughs> I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.